0: Welcome to Mind Love, episode 221. Today's episode is all about letting go of what could have been.
1: There were two roles. One was for Star Wars, and the other one was for Spider-Man. And if those two had worked out, I know that I would have been delivered. But no, it's always something outside of myself that I think is going to make me feel okay. You know, I heard a woman say once at a 12-step meeting, you are the fish you are trying to catch. The good news and the bad news is that you are the love of your life. You're everything you've been looking for. And I was like, God, she's so right. But it took me a long time to realize what that meant for me. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers,
0: dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. It's a new day, a new episode, and a new opportunity to subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening for the first time, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you always know about new episodes. Plus, it makes you one of my favorite people. Because the more subscribers I have, the more I attract amazing guests to help better serve you. So don't forget to subscribe. Today, I would love to share a review from Clarky So, who says... New habit is to listen to podcasts as I'm rolling out of bed, and I tend to lean toward this one the most. It's informative and supportive. I feel like I'm chatting with insightful friends as I wake up and get ready for the day. Five stars aren't enough for this podcast. Ah, Thank you so, so much. You guys know I absolutely love reading these reviews. It's like I finally get some feedback, like you guys are talking back to me. So I so appreciate this because, like I said, it totally lights up my world but now let's get to the show. Do you ever wonder what could have been? If you hadn't made that mistake, if your dad hadn't left, if you hadn't self-sabotaged, if you hadn't broken up, if you hadn't been injured? I used to fantasize that way all the time. I made a few of what I thought at the time were life-ruining decisions. And somehow, those decisions out of all of the other ones are the ones that robbed me of the life I should have had. The funny thing about the could have beens, the more we obsess about this idealized version of our lives, the more it becomes what would have been or what should have been because we are so sure that just one little pivot would have led us right to this picture perfect life. But guess what? we make around 35,000 little choices a day. 35,000 tiny decisions every single day. That's almost a quarter million choices per week, which is almost 13 million per year and about a billion over the course of our lives. You literally have a billion decisions to make and somehow we are able to magically pinpoint the one that has screwed everything up. For me, I internalized those could-have-beens as should-have-beens. I should have known better. I should not have allowed myself to be manipulated. I should not have let someone else's bad decisions ruin my record. I should have been the CEO of a billion-dollar company by now, named Forbes 30 Under 30. I had everything going for me, and this is not how it should be. For years, I really believed that. Now, though, that story of shoulds, doesn't even feel like me at all. I wouldn't even be happy as the CEO of a billion-dollar company. But most importantly, I wouldn't be me if that version of reality had played out. And I like me. I like who I am now. And every one of those supposed life-ruining decisions, along with a million little good ones, carefully laid out a life that crafted this version of me. So a decade later, the jig is up the universe knew better. God knew better. There was never a could have been because all of this was meant for me. But I get it. It's hard to get to that place of acceptance where you see the beautiful garden that is your life, especially when you're still in the weeds. So how do you trust that everything is working out for your highest good when you feel like shit? Well, that's what we're talking about today, among other things. Our guest is Josh Peck, you may recognize him from Nickelodeon Phenomenon in the early 2000s called Josh and Drake. He's also been in movies such as Mean Creek, The Wackness, Red Dawn, Danny Collins, Take the Ten, and Netflix's The Musical. And he's about to be on a new Hulu series called How I Met Your Father. So three key things we will learn are how viewing your trauma as unique holds you back from healing, what it means to find your apostles, And how to let go of the imaginary and find value in your path. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track. But then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, The Dr. John Deloney Show is here for you. Listen to The Dr. John Deloney Show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. And now let's
1: welcome Josh Peck to the show. Thank you for having me. This is awesome.
0: So before we get into all the details of your story, give us a brief overview of who you are and really what inspired you to write your newest book.
1: Okay. I'm Josh Peck. I'm an actor. I've been an actor since I was a kid, and now I am uh, the host of the Male Models podcast because for obvious reasons, I'm a model, a male (laughs) one, mostly, mostly high fashion only, obviously. And I am now, I guess, an author, which seems odd. And I feel like if I'm an author, then that kind of takes away from any other author that's ever existed. But I too now am an author of a book called Happy People Are Knowing that comes out March 15.
0: So I was preparing for this interview by going through your book, and I actually ended up reading almost the whole thing. I'm almost done with it because oh, you're wow. hilarious.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: I love it. I plan on writing a book within the next two years. And so I was just like, I need to take inspiration about this writing style. It's amazing. How was the writing process for you coming from more of an actor background?
1: I appreciate it. I mean, I just feel like the last thing I wanted to do was make people think that I was like talking at the them from a place of like, I've figured it all out because I surely haven't. It's basically like me qualifying a tough experience or a challenging experience in my life and sort of detailing how I got through it. And I think the one thing that's special about my experience is that a lot of people can pinpoint exactly where I was during that time because they probably were watching me on television during it. So, (laughs) you know, growing up like a public figure, it's just great because A lot of self-helping memoir books, you kind of have to take people, maybe not memoirs, but self-help books, you have to take people at their word, you know, because they're dictating a story that you weren't privy to. But for me, I kind of like grew up in the public eye a bit, And so when I'm telling people something, they they can actually cross-reference it and be like, oh, he's telling the truth. I remember that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I relate to you so much. There's so many different points in your book. You had kind of binge eating habit. I did too, only I mm. kind of uh counteracted it with bulimia. <laughs> and I was also sure. the kid in the back of the 12 step meeting with my dad. He was in Narcotics Anonymous when I was young, playing wow. with blocks while people were telling these crazy testimonies that most like 8-year-olds probably shouldn't be hearing. And then I also dealt with addiction later on in life, which is kind of what led to the inspiration of this podcast. So so many of the things that you were saying, I was like Sometimes it felt like you were speaking right from my mind and other times you were giving me a perspective on the things that I had also gained a perspective on that helped me heal. But even hearing just another one, I was like, Oh yeah, that that adds just a little bit deeper of a layer for me.
1: I'm so glad to hear that. I, I think that, you know, the silver lining of all our experiences and, and you've shared some just now and and like it's not easy to be that I mean now you have a podcast, so you have like this outlet in which that you're helping people. By being willing to be vulnerable and transparent. And I think that's what gives our experience value yeah. is that people can see themselves in what we went through.
0: I will say that this podcast isn't even just about what I've learned to share with other people. And you can probably relate by writing this book. A lot of what I am learning th- is through this podcast, through sharing and hearing myself. It's like outside of my brain and into another perspective where I wrote a keynote speech once and and that, that has to be an hour long and something about drilling my story down into like almost sound bites, but also like the lessons... I thought I had had all the lessons until I actually wrote it down and was fleshing it out. And I gained so many more lessons through not only figuring out how to write it and how to share it in a way that people would understand, but then also from the feedback that I receive when I do share or even just hearing myself say it out loud.
1: That's so cool. Yeah, I love hearing that because you're right. There is a power in in writing things out and When I've been going through challenging moments, or I'm a bit confused on what I'm feeling, but I'm at a a dis ease, you know, trusted people in my life will be like, "Well, write it out," you know, and and always like you write it out. I I look like I got time to journal. Like I'm not (laughs) a diary guy, but you're right. Like putting pen to paper really helps your. I find your mind sort of to to see things in a from a different perspective.
0: Yeah, I thought that I could just integrate everything I learned just if I kept reading books. And I didn't realize that by not doing the cheesy exercises at the back, I was missing this really big part of understanding what it was telling me. Because otherwise, it's just like my same patterns would be repeating in my mind versus when you write it down, you you slow it down, it comes out through another outlet. And it's not so much of my ego kind of driving the narrative. And part of your book, you said that we're all an amalgamation of trauma. What did you mean by that?
1: I mean, I think in in many instances, and you could say that about a lot of things, right? We're an amalgamation of joy and we're an amalgamation of experience. But, you know, there's so much inherited. I mean, we are of the first generation, like the last hundred years. I don't think it's any coincidence that great psychological minds, be it Freud or Carl Jung, like, The renaissance in sort of psychology has been the last hundred years because before that, it wasn't a privilege of our ancestors five, six generations before us who were like, whose, you know, the median lifespan was, you know, under 50. And most people had, you know, unless you were born into like wealth or nobility, they were basically just trying to make ends meet, you know, and not freeze to death. So I think now with all this sort of luxuries of, sort of modern life we spend a lot of time with ourselves we have a lot of time to contemplate where we are and where we make sense and so i think we're of the only the last couple of generations have have had that privilege and yeah so i think like it's it's again i, I look at my own story and I think about, you know, grandparents that I never knew and what they went through and what they gave to my mom who then did her best in cleaning it up and giving it to me. And yet still, I wasn't free of inherited trauma and dysfunction.
0: Just in the last... um six months, about a little over six months ago, I finally gave up alcohol and I've had a Ooh. weird relationship with it. I had made so many different changes from not doing party drugs all the time, not being addicted to Adderall, not being bulimic anymore, but it was my one thing. I'm like, I can moderate and I I did, but I noticed that even if I was only having one glass of wine a day, the regular drinking was just creating like one- it was like a very mild, dark cloud to where it was hard to even pinpoint that that's what it was coming from. And recently I, I had a baby a year ago. And so was, all of a sudden it became very poignant to me that I was like, not going to pass down this pattern that a lot of my family members have. Mm. And then I started feeling really guilty because my dad had passed when I was 19 and he was sober my whole life. He had come from a lot of trauma. And so suddenly it started to really bother me that I'm like, my dad tried to set this path for me. And now I'm trying to set this path for my child. Like maybe two generations of a distance will be good enough before, or will will have the effect last through the, that those generations.
1: I think that's a great point. You're right. It takes, it's generational and, I don't, you know, obviously I'm in recovery now and my son will be privy to it in some respect, hopefully not till he's later in life. Not that I'm trying to keep it from him. I just think like, you know, he's got more important things like Spider-Man and Blippy to be worried about at three. Um, but, you know, inevitably maybe just with the knowledge that his father, you know, ha- has this experience and has this proclivity, maybe that will make him predestined to have some of his own challenges. I don't know. Or maybe like... You know, I surely wasn't insulated from it. That's for sure. Like you talk about, like growing up, going to 12-step meetings with my mom, I assumed that it was like this massive prophylactic. I've spent so much time around sort of any kind of uh, 12-step meeting. If ever I'm faced with addiction, I'll know exactly what to do. But of course, you know, when it was my turn, all of that went out the window.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says, (laughs) and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small, and when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Yeah, it's it's more complicated than <laughs> than we think. I think we're all just kind of here for our own path and and these things can kind of be forks in the road that steer us in directions, but I hope the very least that I'm modeling something for my child along with whatever lessons he comes here to learn. But it's interesting cuz a lot of your book it kind of goes into the history of your life like an absent father, being very overweight, being in the spotlight and and your journey through that and what led to drugs. And I go back and forth with my own growth and healing. And sometimes I find it really important to understand maybe the reasons that I got here. And then other times I I find that finding those reasons can sometimes catch me in another trap where then That's where I stay stuck. Like these are all the reasons that I am this way. So it's even harder to move forward. Did you find it helpful or what was your process of really kind of moving through the reasons you got here versus stopping those stories and creating a new one?
1: Yeah, I try not to get bogged down in the why because we all have a sad story, (laughs) you know, and, and whether you, you're, and it presents itself in some, you know, addictive qualities or you seem to have it all together, maybe too much so. You know, I, I don't think anyone without their sad story, and I don't mean to take legitimacy away from it and to sound like callous, because I know, and, and I know that my particular trauma is specific to me. And while I certainly had a challenging life, like I was spared of a lot of the things that I've seen other people go through. So in that way, I'm very lucky. But I... I think that there just comes a point where no one's making an excuse for us. Like I call it the invisible loser line. Like, and I don't know what it is, if it's 30, if it's 35, but like we all pass this line where eventually people stop looking at us like the sad kid who needs help and more like an adult who doesn't have their shit together. And at that point it's either like, you know, and I know I, I see that snap judgment where they're just like, ah, oh, Rick never seems to get it together and he just needs to like go to therapy and get a gym membership <laughs> like, or whatever it is. <laughs> and again, like, I don't mean to be so callous about it or like to sound flippant. I just mean it as like the world will stop making excuses for you eventually. And so it's incumbent on all of us that, you know, whether we like it or not, we're going to have to face these things or it won't be a wonder why you know, we've driven people away or maybe, you know, our life hasn't quite come together in the way we had hoped.
0: Yeah, you had two of those moments, it seemed, oh, probably more, but the two that uh, were standing out to me from reading your story were when you finally decided... It's up to you to lose the weight. And then when you finally decided it's up to you to stop doing the drugs, I had a few of those too. It was like, I, I wish that all my growth happened at once, where I'm like, you know what? I need to get everything together. But no, for me, it was like, okay, maybe I shouldn't do 50 milligrams of Adderall every day. Maybe I shouldn't be doing Molly five nights a week. Maybe I shouldn't throw up my food every meal. You know, it was like every sure. like little steps. And a lot of people come to me asking, uh, like maybe they have a family member that is struggling with the eating disorder or drugs or whatever. And they're like, how do I help them? What do I do? And when I look back, it's, it's almost hard for me to share. I, I know that there were seeds planted. I know that the harder my mom pushed though, the more I resisted and almost like the more I clung to some of those escape mechanisms.
1: Hmm. How do
0: you talk about that? I'm sure people have asked you for help. What do you see as that as either how to help somebody else or how to help yourself in those moments. Is there something somebody can do or do you just have to be ready and that, and that comes uh, uniquely to each individual person?
1: Yeah, I think it's about modeling the behavior that you hope to see in others. And, and we, you know, you and I are parents, like, you know, it with your kid and that like I don't think anything will be as effective as just my kid watching me day in and day out you know hopefully not having like emotional outbursts or yesterday I remember I was walking with my son and it it it, it was my mess up and it was the cars mess up but I, I like crossed the street in the middle of the street but there's no excuse it was not a crosswalk but it was like it was uh, but it was like a small side street it wasn't some major thoroughfare and also it was like a time of the day where there wasn't a lot of traffic and the guy was just jamming and I just saw that and it wasn't as though he got close but he had to slam on his brakes and I had to pull back my son's stroller and I looked at him and I just like shook my head and I sort of walked off and and we 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 had words but it wasn't like you know it just I was like it's all good man like don't worry about it because you know we were sort of both at fault he probably shouldn't be driving that quick and it wasn't a crosswalk and I really remember walking away going like wow like dad points that I didn't like pop my fucking top in front of my kid or like, and because all I would have been acting out about would be, I was scared. You scared me. And I was scared that I, not only would it, would I have an accident, but my kid would be hurt, like God forbid. And I was like, you know, that was a moment in which I could have had an outburst and rationalized it. And, and but that would have sat with my son. But instead he saw that, you know, his dad get a little scared and walk it off. So I think like those are really important. Um, those are really important things, like attraction rather than promotion. But more importantly, do you find that everyone's on Adderall? Because I find that everyone's on Adderall. Yeah,
0: I mean, I I find that everyone's on medication because the industry is really good at getting everybody on medication and making them a lifelong customer. (laughs) But that's just my perspective.
1: (laughs) And everyone wants an easy out. Like, it's so funny. I have a buddy on Adderall who's, like, uh, very clearly should not be on Adderall. Mm -hmm. And he's rationalized it because it's prescription. And I go, like, you can tell yourself whatever you want, but it's speed. You're on speed. And like, I know it comes in like an orange jar and you got it at Rite Aid or whatever pharmacy. And so you've like tricked yourself into believing this is above board. But like, you can always find the kind of doctor that will write you that prescription who shouldn't be. And you can always be taking it when you know you shouldn't be, right? Like there's just plenty of rationalizations. And and I I just think that's so insidious about prescriptions is that people go like, no, 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 trust me, I need this. Like someone with a degree told me yeah. And I'm not a doctor. I don't want to to make but my buddy's totally abusing it. And I'm like, Well the doctor didn't tell you to snort it. <laughs>
0: like- well yeah, and I think we'll make those excuses for ourselves. Like, it's a hard prescription to be on because it's controlled. You have to go into the doctor every single month to get it. As a traveler, right. the, when I finally got off of it was because I thought I was moving to Croatia. That was the final straw when I was like, I can't get it over there. I might as well wean myself now. But you for can't over. You can get
1: it because, like, Croatian, the health system there, they're just not promoting speed.
0: <laughs> but likely. I mean, I'm sure right. I could, but I didn't even know how to go to the doctor in Croatia. Like, I wasn't going to have health insurance in Croatia. I didn't know. Sure. It was just. Uh, too much and I was Googling it. And, like I found some number for a guy in Croatia that might give. like these were the things I was looking into and I was like, whoa, Melissa, you have a problem. Like but right. there were, there would be times when I first started dating my husband and I'd call, you can't even call around to the pharmacies and they, uh, cause they won't tell you if they have it in, you have to go in and then you'd go there and they'd say, oh, we're out of stock. And so I'd have to go to another one. And sometimes I'd be going to like five different Rite Aids or driving down the mountain. I live in a mountain town and, uh, just to get it, and and I would, by the end of it, I'd be freaking out, like seriously tweaking like a drug addict, and I didn't see that in myself until after I was finally off of it, because the excuses that I make for myself, but really for me, I think one of the biggest ties to Adderall, the one of the biggest reasons that I could not let it go, was because it was really wrapped up in my binge eating as well, and it curbed mm. that sometimes, and so I was afraid, I had, by the time I got off Adderall, I had been on a healing journey from bulimia for a while, but I wasn't sure I'd be able to do it without that crutch. And so it was, Adderall was always so much more to me than just focusing. It became a part of my identity uh, and who I was and what I relied on. And I didn't know who I would be without it.
1: I totally get it. Yeah. I mean, like when I, when I first did drugs and alcohol, like I felt like I had just sort of unleashed a new personality. Like I'd unlocked this new personality of the kind of people that I looked up to, like Anthony Bourdain and you know, Hunter S. Thompson and Basquiat and like all these cool people who didn't give a fuck. And I was like, oh, this is what I wanted to be. Like, I don't want to be the kid actor who worries about what you think. I want to be like this like badass dude who who doesn't care what anyone thinks. And, and inevitably I was just like a cliche child actor who was, you know, quickly going to become like yet another one who falls down a bad path and is forgotten. <laughs> but, you know, I, I could have sworn the moment it like – I did that that drug. I was like, wow, like I've attained the ranks of the cool kids. So
0: when you finally made that choice to not be on drugs anymore, because it was kind of wrapped up into like who it unlocked who you wanted to be. And for me, I It's interesting because in hindsight, I see it so differently than when I was actually in it. In hindsight, I feel like it stole a lot of my personality. Like it hijacked it and I wasn't connected. Mm. Even when I was being like the funny person in the center of the room, being super social – it stole a lot of my joy. I started laughing at the little things more when I finally was weaning myself off of it after that terrible 45-day come down period. <laughs> but then I was Whoa. like, oh my God, this is what my body feels like. Oh my gosh, this is what true laughter feels like. Oh my gosh, this is what it, ha- what it feels like to connect with myself without being fueled by something artificial. What was your experience uh, with, how do you see what that kind of fuel was for you now that it's in hindsight.
1: Yeah, there were moments like I remember when I was 16 and just being like a total typical teenager. So everything sucked. And I remember going to like Las Vegas with my mom on a family trip and sort of having this one realization of like, oh, like you're never going to have like you're at the end of fun family trips, like as like a teenager, as a part of this unit you know, maybe you'll do them as adults, as an adult, but then you'll be an adult. And like, and I remember there's like photos of me at 16 where I was actively trying to have a good time and I did and not like trying to look cool in a photo or look like, you know, or, or doing what I could to thin myself out. And, and so similarly with drugs and alcohol, it was like, once I'd sort of walked away from this thing, I could re-examine the things that I always thought were cool. And so many old stories that I was telling myself of who I thought I needed to present to the world. But it took me a really long time to see that that got, you know, that who I was was good enough. You know, usually for me and like my, my story of growth, it's never been addition. It's been addition by subtraction. It's always been like taking things away where I feel more myself than being like, I just need to like add two more layers and then I'll be Okay.
0: I agree. And I think I chased the wrong thing for so many years, just reading so many books and taking courses and getting certified in things. And I thought if I just kept building myself up, then I would be somebody, you know, it's, it's funny because that that sentence was going to come out like somebody that people looked up to, but I stopped myself from saying it because I just had this voice in my head that it was just, uh, I thought that I would love myself more Mm -hmm. like that. That's what would be the key part that I would finally accept myself. And I think I was always expecting it, that it was other people's approval that I was looking for when really I don't think any of the validation in the world was going to heal myself until I was the one to give myself that next.
1: Yeah, it's it's always been an inside job, but I could swear like if, if I had just booked like three out of the last like 40 roles of the last 10 years that I didn't get, I'm like, I'm sure if like if I'd only booked like these three, like most of those movies sucked but there was maybe even two, there's like two roles. Like these are the things that go in my head. I'm like, there were two roles. One was for star Wars and the other one was for Spider-Man. And if those two had worked out, I know that I would have been delivered, but no, it's always something outside of myself that I think is going to make me feel okay. And I just, you know, I heard a woman say once at a 12 step meeting, you are the fish you are trying to catch. The good news and the bad news is that you are the love of your life. You're, ev- you're everything you've been looking for. And, and I was like, God, she's so right. But it took me a long time to realize what that meant for me.
0: So did you have a rock bottom that was finally, like, what was that moment in time where you're like, okay, I need to get my shit together? Or was it a series of multiple rock bottoms? I know that one of them had to do with Judd Apatow. <laughs> what was that moment in time where you're like, okay, I need to get my shit together?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, so when I finished Drake and Josh, which was the kids show I was on for many years, I, I was, you know, 19 years old, I'd lost a hundred pounds I'm drinking, I'm using, and I'm sort of this new head, or I'm sorry, I'm a new body, but with the same head. So, so I, I quickly discovered sort of this new medication because I didn't have food anymore. And I was also being supremely stupid and a total, like, just cliche actor kid with a little bit of money, but, like, was quickly de- depleting all my resources. And I wind up booking this this job for Judd Apatow, and he's, you know, at this time, this is, like, in the mid-2000s where he's, like, just sort of rising to the height of his powers. And he wound up giving me this great opportunity in this movie called Drobit Taylor, And he kind of said, honestly, he's like, you know, I don't think you're right for the role you auditioned for. I'm not even sure there's a role in here for you, but you're funny. So come and be funny and we'll figure out places to put you and maybe you can write some jokes for us and whatnot. And and I just showed up late and was totally unreliable. Like I wasn't a monster. I just was like a bummer. And (laughs) it basically ended in me showing up late so many times that I got a a call from, or I'm sorry, I got an email from Judd, like very explicitly saying like, this behavior is unacceptable. Like it, it costs, it costs the movie money and you're a funny guy, but your professionalism means a lot of work. And I could never have understood at the time, the impact of that. And, and of course things worked out the way they, they were supposed to work out, but inevitably like these were opportunities that I was like squandering because I just was not—I was—I was not in in a good place, and and there were a few of those. To where finally, when I was 21, it was actually—I'm the kind of guy where when everything's going right is when I get really uncomfortable. Uh, when everything go is going wrong, it, it sort of validates my worst fear of like I knew everything was going to be shit in my life, so I'll just be you know I'll just hunker down. I'm good at that. Um, but when everything's going right, I really. Because I've told myself this lie my whole life that if only I get to this finish line, if only I lose 100 pounds, if only I get sober, if only I get some big fancy acting role, then and only then will I feel okay. And when I was 21, I had made this movie called The Whackness with Sir Ben Kingsley, my favorite actor, and, and i met the Sundance Film Festival, which I had dreamed of going to and having a movie there. When I was 16, I had a small part in a movie at Sundance. And I remember making like a vow that one day Josh will be back here with a movie you're starring in. And I was there. And Quentin Tarantino came to like the first screening of the movie and Marsha Gay Harden and all these impressive people. And, and then the reviews start coming in and they're fabulous. And I woke up that next morning and I assumed that I would wake up and be a different me. Like I really thought that okay, I'm going to go to bed tonight, the old Josh. When I wake up tomorrow, I'm going to be content and a movie star and thin and all the things that I'd worked on my entire life. And I woke up and I was like, oh, no, Josh is here. <laughs> like, I was like, Josh is still here. And I immediately ran and got a ticket home and flew home and people were screaming at me. They were like, what are you doing? Like, you're the star of a movie. The movie is received well. This never happens. Like enjoy this. And I was, I, I just had to, I, I just was so uncomfortable in my own skin that I had to go and, and leave. And I did. And two weeks later, I got sober because the jig was up. I knew that no matter how good or how bad life got, unless I did the inner work, I was never going to be comfortable.
0: Oh, I love that story. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of sad, but it's also so inspiring because that's totally true. I, I, uh, remember feeling that way, uh, when I finally got down to a weight that I was really proud of and I did it in the most unhealthy way possible, like I said, I was throwing up my food. And I remember thinking like, well, I guess I'm going to have to die early because I know that I'm on copious amounts of Adderall and I'm also throwing up my food and none of this is sustainable, but I would rather, there's no way that I can gain weight again. And mm. the uh, amount of self-worth you don't have in order to think about think that way I I had to make a choice at one point like I have to be okay with what my body's going to look like uh whatever choices I choose and uh, ironically I ended up uh being thinner not that it even matters at this point my body I have such a different relationship with my body especially after having a child but I didn't ever realize I was naturally thin because I had been screwing up my metabolism <laughs> for so oh. long um, but I I went through all these different stages of, of my weight and I, I still kind of have, just have a body that fluctuates in weight depending, or at least that was my story. I'm not sure. It's been years <laughs> and it's, it's kind of hard to, even now I I can feel that girl that like is afraid of getting bigger or getting addicted to things or or having less control. And I have to like, like for me, I have to stop and meditate and remind myself like, Number one, those aren't the things that matter. Number two, that was never who you are. Like, I have ways to talk myself through these really destructive mental patterns. How do you move forward having had so many different patterns that were ingrained and one addiction to the next? Do those things still come up in your life? And if so, like, what is your method for moving through them so that you don't fall into old patterns?
1: No, I think that's a great point. And I don't think you ever compare completely, uh, rid yourself of these things. I think you turn the volume down immensely. And then depending on like my maintenance, um, my spiritual maintenance is kind of how loud or soft the voices are. And so, but the gift is like, I hate when people say like, well, awareness is the first step I'm aware. I'm like, you know what? You can be aware a tsunami is coming but if you don't get out of the splash zone, you're gonna die. Like it doesn't matter if you don't take action. Awareness is utterly meaningless. But what I will say is, is that being awake and aware now, because I've, I've you know, been lucky enough to, to have a little bit of time of sobriety and, and done some inner work, is like I can see negative patterns or negative behaviors when they start sort of um, sprouting. And and I can know where they come from. So, like, I love that there's this old saying, like, if you meet more than two assholes in a day, maybe you're the asshole. And, like, and I can see that. Like, if I'm at the checkout counter at the grocery store and I'm pissed that you have 13 items in a 12-item line, and then I'm also, like, thinking to myself, my mom, you know, she, she always needs me to help her, you know, get on the Internet. She just figured it out at 77. She can't figure out how to get on the Internet or like, or like, you know, my wife just doesn't support me or like my kid's not listening. It's like, no, no, no. What's going on, Josh? Like what's going on? Because it's you, it's you. And, and then I can start doing that work and see like, you know, am I doing the things that, that allow my life to stay good? Like, am I putting my sobriety first and, and spiritual maintenance and then physical maintenance, doing things to keep like all those good feeling chemicals surging in my brain and or am I just spending too much time thinking about me? And am I actively like trying to help other people? It's easy to be of service to my, my wife and my son. And that's a value. But when like I'm a real spiritual giant is when I'm like doing nice things for other people and not getting caught doing them. That's when I'm like, wow, I'm truly like Gandhi in this moment. What was the last was
0: thing the last you did thing? like that?
1: I'd be ruining it if I tell you that you oh. uh, can't take credit. But, you know, a good place to start is like by like go return some some shopping carts in the parking lot of your local big box store. I don't know what your thing is, but like, you know, it's just people, you know, I, I, it's so easy to walk by carts and be like, people are sick. You know, <laughs> it's so clear that you're supposed to return them right here. There's a whole station. But or sometimes I was like, ah, or like even I make snap judgment. I try to do this with my son at the park my wife, you know, probably gets annoyed. She's like, you wonder why our kid's sick all the time is like, when if we go to the park, I try to like say that if he's playing in the sandbox or sees like a water bottle or some kind of debris, I'm like, let's pick it up and let's clean it ourselves. Cause this is our park. Like we enjoy this park. And so like, it's important that we help keep it clean too. It's not just to leave to the people who work in the parks department or whatever. And, uh, And so, like, just those little moments of being aware, I think, are important.
0: Yeah, it's like modeling. Even that actually comes back to, there's been so many times where, like, the dishes will be in the sink. And I'm like, why can't my husband just do the dishes? Which I'm not saying he doesn't. He does them sometimes. But, you know, the time that it's not, suddenly I'm like, he never does it (laughs) in my head. The story that goes. And there was a, a... especially since having a child, because I know that we're both just doing the best we can. We're both adding as much value as you can. Something in my mindset flipped where I'm like, this is something that I value is having a clean sink. Like he values other things that he does for me all the time. And if he suddenly expected me to just jump on board and, you know, start hanging all the pictures, (laughs) it would, it would be, they'd be sitting against the wall for a really long time as well. But, uh, so yeah, I try to, I try to bring that mindset with everything where I'm like, well, this is something that I value. So it's up to me to model this behavior. And it it actually kind of reminds me of the story you told earlier about crossing the street, being a good dad, uh, and not like flipping your shit when i was pregnant my husband rides bmx and so he still goes to skate parks and does flips and everything well there was a time where he was at a skate park and and there were these like 15 year old kids just kind of being punks and uh they were throwing this ball and it kept landing in the in the bowl of i don't know the skate terms but of the skate park and my husband was just thinking like this is super dangerous like trying not to like say anything to these kids. I think he actually did say like, hey, careful or whatever. And then this little girl comes with her dad and the kids are still, the 15 year olds are still being kind of jerks over there. And the ball ends up coming and hitting this two-year-old girl in the head and she starts screaming. And my husband was like ready to watch this dad throw down. He was thinking that's what he would do. And the dad actually just like visibly took a deep breath Comforted his daughter and then went over to those kids and like calmly explained to them why it was not okay. And they were still being jerks. Who knows if it went through? They were like, I said I'm sorry, and like stormed off. And my husband came back and told me and he's like, that's what the dad move is. The dad move isn't to like blow your horn and to cause a scene because then that's the behavior that you're modeling. And so that's stuck with him. And now we have a kid and it is something that we, that even I think about. And so the fact that this dad was his best self, it passed to my husband, it passed to me. It's just the power of like modeling those values. So when you go back to doing those positive things and like showing your child or showing other people that you're just going to go collect carts, you don't know who's watching and the ripple effect that that's going to have.
1: I agree. No, I think that's so cool. I think it's so cool that your husband does BMX. Wow. That seems terrifying.
0: He also does snowboarding. He does flips. He can do a backflip while standing. He's crazy, (laughs) but it's inspiring of staying active. Yeah, (laughs) I love it. So when you think about these different opportunities that at the time you were just in a place and yes, it might've led to your transformation, but I can imagine that some of the things it's hard to not think about what could have been if you had changed earlier. How do you deal with those types of thoughts?
1: I don't think so much about, like, what could have been had I, you know, become part of Judd Apatow's crew, except when I look at my house, it could be so much bigger. Um, no, I... <laughs> I also just think, like, I try not to think of my my experiences so special. And, like, sometimes I'll contemplate, what if I never went into acting? What if I just was, like, a normal kid in New York and I had grown up that way with, you know, a great, strong, single mom? Um, so, I, you know, I... I because I wanted to all be okay. Like I got a very specific. I got lucky in a very specific way. That the thing that I had a bit of proclivity and a bit of natural talent for tends to be something that can be very lucrative and like rewarded socially, right? But like it's not better or worse than what anyone else does. It, it just serves a purpose. And, and when I can find virtue in what I'm doing, like it's easy to just think like that. Being in show business is all about just, um, you know there's a lot of self-service when, when it comes to showbiz, but if you get down to it at its root level, like what, who are, who are the storytellers in the tribe, right? Like they're there to take everyone's mind off of how tough it was all day, you know, walking through the prairie or trying to, you know, stalk this, this elk so everyone could eat that night or whatever it was, right? Like Hopefully we're there to make everyone feel okay for a little bit. And now in modern times, that's like people live these long, hard people work these long, hard days and they live hard lives. And if they can come home and lose themselves in some TV show that we create for half an hour or an hour, it's like that's a value. So I try to like find the value in what I'm doing and not make it all like something that I'm just trying to game the universe and be like, I just want to, you know, I want to, get, get a high score in life.
0: Yeah. You said that you don't like to think of your situation as special, but there was something that you wrote in your book that stood out to me because I could relate so much. And you said that, uh, you walked around most of your life feeling terminally unique, but like God glitched in this. And I was the same way. And honestly, That's what took me so long to seek help or to share my story because I just thought I am just too complex. Nobody's going to understand this. And when I did start sharing it and so many people related, no, regardless of what crazy part of my story I'm telling, I'm like, oh, even if no one can relate to these specific details, we all have basically just versions of similar stories uh, on different levels and whatever that we could handle or what, what led it to us. And I have, I used to really struggle with the what could have been because um, when most of my listeners know this story, but I ended up falling into a terrible relationship. I was finding out things one by one. I was only focused on the cheating part, but turned out he was a part of the largest burglary ring in the county that we lived in. And I ended up going to jail for his crime. And then I ended up taking a felony so that he wouldn't go to jail for 10 years for something that I didn't do. And I then that changed the way I applied for jobs. I'm like, I can't write this story on two lines of a job application. But now when I see the bigger picture, I see that, yes, I thought my life was ruined, but all it did was it kind of it limited my options in a way that at the time seemed bad, but it was my slingshot toward entrepreneurship. And so now I always look at that, like, what do I feel like I'm losing right now? And instead of looking at it as I'm losing something, can I look at it as it's narrowing down my options to make the path I'm supposed to go forward that much more clear?
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's unbelievable. So you went to jail?
0: I did. I was only in jail for eight days. Um, I waited to get out on my own recognizance. And then I sat going to court every month while it kept getting pushed back and then took a deal because our cases were combined. And so if I went to trial to prove my innocence, which I could because I was in Hawaii during the whole time of the eyewitness reports, but then he would automatically have to go to trial and he would automatically get a minimum of 10 years in jail. And at the time I felt like I couldn't do that to somebody who I thought was misunderstood. His dad, dad died the weekend I met him. My dad had died. And so I just made excuses over and over again. And yeah, long story short, I ended up taking a deal so he could take a deal. And it was one of the dumbest decisions of my life. But that's what happens when you, I paid out of pocket for whatever attorney I could afford while his family put 50 grand towards his attorney. And that's who was counseling me while mine never showed up. So it wasn't the most fortunate of
1: circumstances. Wow. You're incredible. See, you're like um, you're like Ray Liotta's wife in Goodfellas, Lorraine Bach.
0: <laughs> I've been waiting for someone are, to tell me
1: this. <laughs> you are down and, and much respect.
0: <laughs> I yeah, it took me a while to respect that version of me, but that actually reminds me of how you talked about how it took you a really long time to love the the child you were, the one that you had spent so much time consumed in self hatred. How did you? change the way you looked at that version of yourself and did that has that helped you in your present
1: I think it was more about making my peace with my origin story that I was never going to get to rewrite it and then also not judging that kid like thinking that he had a choice and I used to think of myself in the third person like you know here I am now and I'm I'm in my 30s and I've I've been you know pretty regimented I've I've you know I'm I have a lot of uh I'm just pretty disciplined, and I looked at that kid for a long time. That thought and thought like, "Oh, we're so undisciplined. How could you? How could you let yourself get like that? Why did you do that to our body?" Like, but the reality is, I I love that kid now, and it took me a long time to love him because I realized he had to be stronger than I ever could be, and he was strong in a way that I don't have to be anymore. And he just wasn't equipped. He didn't have the tools that I have now that could only be sort of acquired from living life and from, you know, putting one step, one foot in front of the other and also like doing the next indicated action. So, you know, in, in the mind of a 14 year old, I I think I I was doing pretty damn well with the, the coping mechanisms that I had at that time.
0: I don't know why that little monologue just almost teared me up, but I guess maybe because I was thinking about the version of myself, you know, um, I've, I've done a lot of healing with her, but just every now and then i I'm not sad for what she went through as much as how uh, I'll have moments of being sad for how I treated myself how i how I looked at myself even after the fact and it it really is a a journey like there's there's little pockets of that self-loathing that I still uncover to this day. but now instead of like immediately reaching for something that's gonna numb those feelings i i sit with it. And I sit in that pain and I see where it hurts in my body. And I and I try to just focus on that until it releases. And it's just, uh, it's funny because I find that the more that I grow, the more I'm presented with another level of healing. And I, and I see it as like, well, I wasn't ready for this last year. I'm ready for this this year. Or I had to understand this about myself to for then the universe to be like, okay, you haven't looked at this one yet. This one's going to be a doozy. And then all of a sudden it's like, boom. And it's like a gut punch to the stomach. I'm like, okay, sit here. That was hard. So when you are actually feeling some of that pain, does it still ever come up for you? And do you have any mindfulness practices or, or practices that help you to not automatically escape like you used to? Or is it a, or a healthier version of escape, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, I think it's just finding, you know, acting my way into right thinking instead of thinking my way into right acting. So it's like in the immediate, what does my kid need? What does my wife need? What does my mom need? And then if I if they're all taken care of, it's like, what can I do for someone in my sphere? You know, thankfully being close to recovery, there's always someone who needs something. And then, you know, and, and then there's just like also the things that I can be doing like within my own power, which is like a little bit of you know, physical or mental conditioning, be it like some spiritual reading or a great podcast or listening to like a guy like Anthony DeMello or like all these different people that I find, you know, people love Eckhart Tolle and people like that. But just, you know, finding these different things that I can tap into. It's just like, again, I need to feel like a person amongst people. I need to feel like um, just another person doing their best because my mind wants me alone alone. It wants me to think that I am better. I am both better and worse than you at the same exact time, and that my case is is just so different. But it's not. I'm just um, a, a guy out here doing my best, like most people.
0: Yeah, you said in the beginning of this episode that we have this kind of luxury of so much time f- with ourselves for self reflection. But I also find it interesting that because we're not constantly having to work in our bodies. Yeah, we have a lot of alone time, but we have more means of escape than we've ever had, like endless Netflix binges, endless social media scrolling. And so that's what I find is what I have to work on now over the other reaching for whatever. It's like reaching for my phone and opening something and like scrolling through everyone else's thoughts instead of just sitting there with my own. And so when it comes to those things with uh, just that addictive patterning. When you feel yourself like really reaching for something else, do you do you have a trigger that reroutes your thoughts?
1: I don't know. I don't know if I've ever like, again, I just, I know that I can't think my way out of it. So it needs like manual intervention. And usually that's like, the easiest way is like go for a run. And then if I can't go for a run, it's like, what does my kid need? And, and past that, like usually that has has, and and then sometimes I just need to call someone and bitch for a minute. All my best friends who who also are in sobriety will usually give me like five minutes. My sponsor, excuse me, my sponsor will give me two. Like, (laughs) or or if I'm like in my head about something in in the future, my my sponsor will be like, well, I can't help you with the pretend. Like it hasn't happened yet. So I can't, and it might never happen. So I really, I, I don't know how to age you with that. So it's just like specific things where I'm just like, yep, got it. Or even my – I remember once I had this bad feedback loop, this obsessive thought forever, and my shrink finally said, Josh, your thoughts are illogical. They're lacking in logic. And I was like, great. That only took 10 years. Thanks. (laughs) So you never know what's going to be the thing that clicks you out of it. But like I know enough avenues to explore that I know there's an answer on one of these.
0: I had a friend who once – I was – in the middle, I was still doing a, a ton of party drugs and whatever. Uh, and I was very reliant on other people because it was one of my escape mechanisms, like not being alone. And and that feeling of FOMO felt like death to me. Like if I was missing a party, like I felt like somebody didn't invite me deliberately. I, like it was over for me. This is done. Like, why am I even here anymore? And I remember kind of laying a guilt trip on a friend In my mid 20s. And she responded back with just, Melissa, I can't take responsibility for your inner turmoil or something along those lines. And at the time, I was just like, this bitch, (laughs) like,
1: terrible friend.
0: But it, it was a seed planted. And honestly, I ended up thanking her a couple of years later. And I was like, thank you. You know, that was tough. And meanwhile, she's like, I said that to you. That sounds horrible. And I was like, good for her. I was like, no, it was honestly, the boundary that I needed in order for me to understand what boundaries even looked like and to create them for myself and to understand that I needed to take responsibility for this. And, and surrounding myself with different people, it was one of the hugest things because I saw a different behavior modeled. But that reminds me of the last question I wanna ask you is, you got advice from Ben Kingsley on finding your apostles. And I I just wanna know, do you still use that advice? And what does it mean to you now? How, How did that end up helping?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, it's like I say in the book, if you're wondering who your last apostle was, think of a person who told you something that, you didn't like when you heard it, but you knew they were right. And because this is my reaction to an apostle, it's always screw them. I'm the worst. They're probably right, but it's too late. Screw it. I'll do it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's about people who are comfortable hurting your feelings um, when they know it'll serve you and, or they're not afraid to hurt your feelings. Some people like to hurt your feelings and they think they're like helping you, but really like, they're just getting off on the fact that you're in tears. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think it's, it's so important. And like, you know, people can be like, I, I feel like most people in my life are apostles. I'm constantly learning from them. And yeah, I mean, like even the, be, you know, they, they always say like the best, kings had really talented jesters because they realized that everyone in a king's life is not acting themselves they're all doing things in which to serve the king and a jester was there to make fun of the king and make them realize like, all the ways in which they were absurd and of course eventually they would cut their heads off but while <laughs> it was working uh, yeah. so I just want people that like, see through me and in a loving way are going are, are gonna to help guide me towards what, what's best for me
0: So for listeners that are resonating with you and are interested in learning more about you and your story, where is the best place for them to connect and where can they find your book?
1: Uh, You can follow me on Instagram at ShuAPack. I've got a podcast called the Male Models Podcast and my book, Happy People Are Annoying, is out uh, March 15th at Amazon and everywhere you can buy books.
0: All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 221. So your challenge for this week is to find a little acceptance in some of those past could have beens. How I want you to start is first to write down everything that you love about yourself. We want to shift our mindsets a bit and start this on the right foot. Next, I want you to consider whatever event comes up first when you think of what could have been. And I want you to think, how did that event help craft the person that you are today? even if it was totally difficult at the time, even if it was one of those decisions that you thought was a life-ruining decision, even if you still have a hard time letting go of that could have been, we want to start building a neural pathway from that moment to this person. What did you learn from that event? What strength were you even forced to develop because of that event? What doors did it close Not so that your life would be worse, but so it could funnel you into the life that you currently have now. This practice is done a lot easier with an accompaniment of a gratitude practice. So the more that you focus on gratitude in general every single day, waking up, making it a point to find some things to be thankful for, going to bed, making a point to find some things to be thankful for during that day, you start to develop a habit to where you start to seek the things that you're thankful for. And it's so easy to find the opposite of that mindset where you're looking at the things that you still don't have or that other people have or that you should have had. The more you focus on that, the less you seem to have. And the more you focus on gratitude, the more you feel like you have. Both of these are just practice and habits of thought where you're focusing on either the abundance of your life or the lack of your life. No matter what your circumstance is right now, there are always things to find to be thankful for. There's actually a great documentary on Netflix, I believe it's called Happy. The filmmakers of this documentary went to different people in all sorts of communities, all levels of wealth, people living in dirt huts, and people living in communal houses in Sweden, all asking them about happiness. Finding people that were happy in situations that maybe you or I would not think we could find a lot of happiness in. And it seems that sometimes, the more simple your life, the easier it is to find that level of happiness. And it really comes with acceptance. Acceptance for what is. Because if you can't change it right now, then all you're doing is creating a mindset where you're seeking out more negative. But what if you focused on what you have already built? Stop living looking at your life like just a circumstance to be changed and think about the fact that you built this, you did it, And not all the bad things, the good things, whether it's your family, whether it's your connections, whether it's your friendship, whether it's just the fact that you are stronger than you were last year or that you right now are making a choice to be stronger than you were last year and that you're on this path where there is so much opportunity ahead of you because you're starting from the beginning right here, right now. So, it doesn't matter where you are, there are always reasons to be grateful. And I want you to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on social media, tag Mind Love Melissa and Mind Love Podcast along with something that you are grateful for today. And I'm going to reshare all of those so you can see all the reasons to be grateful. What I am grateful for right now is that you are even listening to this. I'm also grateful for all of my premium members. That's one of the best ways to support the show. If you love Mind Love, you can join at mindlove.com slash premium. It's $10 a month or $96 per year. So you can save money on the annual subscription and think about it. Think of how much cheaper that is than therapy. For all of you who have made that commitment, I love you so much and thank you. Other ways to support the show are by supporting my amazing sponsors or even just actually listening through that ad time instead of skipping ahead. That is very helpful. (laughs) And also sharing the show or leaving five-star reviews on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week.
1: Thanks for tuning into Your Higher Frequency with Mind Love.
0: Head to mindlove.com
1: for a free gift
0: to keep your vibes up until next week.